0: Greetings, this is Douglas Kimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. Today I'll be handing over the reins of the podcast to my fellow portfolio specialist and Miami University alum, Brian Fontanella. Brian recently sat down with Chief Investment Officer Austin Hawley via Zoom to talk about value investing. Austin starts with a high-level definition of value investing, and then he and Brian spend some time comparing the current environment for value investing to similar periods in the past. They also discuss companies like Google slash Alphabet and Facebook, as well as the outlook for value investing in general. As we continue to work through these unprecedented times, I ask for your understanding for any sound issues that may arise. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy Brian's conversation with Chief Investment Officer Austin Hawley.
1: Austin, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here.
1: So let's jump right into it with one of what I think is uh, a more discussed topic today in the investing world, and that's value investing. I think most people are generally aware of how dramatically value stocks have underperformed growth stocks over the past few years, you know, going um, back over the past decade plus. But I thought you could just start with a little bit of color around that just to kind of frame this dynamic for listeners.
0: Great. Uh, I think that's a really good place to start this conversation because where we find ourselves today is definitely a bit extreme relative to history. But before I start throwing around statistics and talking about how much values underperform, I, I do think it would be helpful to define what it is people are referring to when they talk about growth stocks or value stocks And what people generally mean when they speak about value as a factor in investing is what I would call the academic definition of value, which refers to companies that are priced relatively cheaply compared to some proxy for value, usually book value or earnings. And I'm calling that the academic definition of value because it's a clear technical description and also because it was popularized by academics, uh, namely Eugene Fama and Ken French in some very famous research they did, which showed that value stocks have meaningfully, meaningfully outperformed the broader market over time while growth stocks, those companies that are more expensive relative to some fundamental proxy of value have underperformed. So with that definition in mind, let me try to paint a picture of what the stock market looks like today, focused exclusively on that valuation uh, metric. Through the second week of May, value had underperformed the broad market by almost 15% and it had underperformed growth by nearly 30%, both those over the preceding 12 months. Now, if you take a lar- longer term perspective, which of course we always recommend people to do, Value has underperformed growth by nearly 10% per year over the trailing five years ended mid-May. The only time period with a similar performance disparity is at the peak of the tech bubble in late 1999. Now that's the picture based on price movements, but we should also step back and ask ourselves what drove those price movements, whether it was differences in underlying fundamentals or changes in valuation multiples. And the fundamentals of growth companies are generally superior to those of value companies. And that's definitely been the case uh, over recent periods. And that's generally why people are willing to pay up so much for growth companies. However, if we focus on the differences in valuations, those ratios of price to book value or price to earnings, we can see that those differences have moved to very, very wide uh, levels over the past couple of years. Over long periods of time, the most expensive stocks typically trade at relative valuations that are three to five times more expensive than the cheapest stocks. During early 2020, that ratio has been closer to 10 times. Again, only at the peak of the tech bubble have valuations disparities been this wide. So there you have it. It it has been a brutal stretch of relative performance for anyone selecting stocks purely based on an academic definition of value. Thankfully, not exactly how we approach investing at Diamond Hill. And we have an, an environment today where valuation differences between the most expensive stocks and the least expensive are at historical wides. It is really important to point out that investing is a dynamic activity with an evolving competitive landscape. And there may be good reasons why the past isn't a good guide to the future and why some of these relationships have broken down. But having that context for where we stand today, I think is a great place to start and then think about ways to test uh, whether the environment really has changed in a meaningful way.
1: So I think it's some of those disparities that you were just mentioning, Uh, that caused some people to say that value investing doesn't work anymore. Value investing is dead is kind of a phrase you hear somewhat frequently these days, but it's probably a little bit more complex than that. So maybe talk a little bit about why some of those traditional value metrics that you were just mentioning might
0: not work as well today as they did in the past. Well, first, I don't think I would count out traditional value just yet. Investment management is a highly uncertain activity, and commentators uh, in our industry have had a knack historically of predicting permanent shifts just as the market was preparing to swing back towards more historical norms. Second, I think we have to be really careful about how we define and talk about value investing. In my view, all intelligent investing is value investing meaning you're buying pieces of businesses for less than what you believe them to be worth. However, not all value investing is based on historical proxies for value like book value or earnings, that academic definition of value, which dominates most popular discussions on the topic. We can probably spend much more time you know, discussing that topic later on. But for now, I think it is safe to say that it has been a strange period for traditional academic value investing uh, relative to the long history. And there have been some important changes in the underlying economy and competition in several industries that may give reason to think that value investing using traditional proxies of value is perhaps less relevant today. And I think there's really two notable changes that are somewhat related to one another which we should talk about. And those are number one, the transition in the global economy and in the U.S. in particular, to a service and knowledge-based economy and away from an economy focused on physical assets. And then second, the growing prevalence of internet-based businesses, which have strong network economics and more winner-take-most or winner-take-all type of dynamics. So. I'm gonna start and talk a little bit about that shift in the economy. So we've had this shift away from physical assets and this change has a meaningful impact on the relevance of price to book value in particular as a valuation metric. The whole theory behind behind using book value as a proxy for value is that it represents all the historical investments a firm has made over time to try, try to create value. But in a service and knowledge-based economy, much of the investments, uh, investment that a firm makes, whether it's into customer acquisition, customer retention, brand value, or research and development, are not reflected in book value necessarily, but often run through the expense line as part of the P&L, the profit and loss statement. And by many measures, these types of investments, these knowledge investments, have increased very substantially over the past couple of decades and now outpace traditional capital spending in physical assets. This shift clearly calls into question the theoretical underpinnings of traditional value relationships. Now, turning to the growth of internet-based business models. And when I talk about an internet-based business, I'm referring to companies that we all know, companies like Amazon, companies like Facebook, Google, Netflix, and these companies benefit from powerful network effects, making their products more and more valuable to their consumers and suppliers as they grow and scale relative to competitors. This tendency towards a winner-takes-most competitive structure across many internet verticals, leads to very different dynamics, competitive dynamics than we've seen historically when we look at industries that are more focused on physical assets. Once a company gains a lead online, they can grow very rapidly and they expand their competitive advantage over peers as they're growing, leading to more persistent returns on capital at very high levels and also much larger market shares than in the past. So value investing in its most well-known form has been successful largely due to mean reversion as temporary competitive advantage have been competed away in a market-based economy. It's very possible that the ability to compete advantages away in in an economy that is more dominated by internet-based companies with these types of network effects may look permanently different uh, for investors. And at the very least, it may imply a much more extended time scale for mean reversion to play, uh, to play out. Now, just to bring this discussion back full circle to a comment I made earlier at the beginning of this question, I don't think these changes to the economic landscape undermine value investing in its broadest philosophical sense you know buying things for less than their worth and patiently waiting for the for value to be realized whether it's through cash flows or price appreciation is a very very logical strategy and one that will continue to work but assuming that book value or historical gap earnings will continue to be reasonable proxies for value may indeed face some real hurdles going forward especially in certain important sectors of the economy uh, like technology where we've seen meaningful differences already why do you think
1: it is that so many people still think of value in the same way that they have for the past many
0: decades really yeah this is a this is a great question and i think there are many many parts to truly answering this question in a holistic way but a very important reason has to do with how successful value investing was historically, both the academic version of value investing, but also you know, the well-known personalities that we all know, like Warren Buffett. You know, Value investing was a very notable anomaly that didn't fit nicely within the efficient market frameworks that was the dominant paradigm within finance for, you know, again, many decades. Uh, historically and so the finance profession set about trying to explain why value had outperformed and they did so with theories about risk as well as behavioral biases and the desire to more properly compare and measure investment performance relative to risk led to the creation of a significant institutional infrastructure to support investors in evaluating their active managers. There were new indices, new consultants, new style boxes uh, that we tried to fit active managers into. And they all were more or less built around this notion of trying to better evaluate managers relative to the risks they were taking, whether those risks were related to value investing or growth investing. And so what you have today is a whole industry that's been built around this idea of measuring managers relative to that well-researched notion of academic value. And it's a very large and wildly profitable industry that has some deeply ingrained motivations for perpetuating the status quo today, which is built around those definitions. Now, before I get too cynical about the you know, investment helpers as uh, you know, Buffett and Munger might call them, let me just say that this is not an easy job with an obvious solution. And a big part of the problem is that value, uh, the value of an investment is entirely determined by the cash flows that investment makes in the future, not in the past. But we can't exactly measure and compare portfolios based on an unknowable future cash flow stream. So we have to rely on history as a guide. But those historical metrics can become outdated or misleading when we have periods of change, and making comparisons can become very difficult. And so, again, it's not that the philosophy of value investing has become less valuable. It's that the way we have historically measured value has perhaps become less insightful than it's been in the past. And we have a very significant infrastructure today that's been built around those definitions created in the past, and it's hard to move those overnight.
1: So I think that's a good segue into talking a little bit about how we at Diamond Hill define and think about value investing, which you sort of alluded to earlier, uh, but also, why our philosophy is well suited to consider these changes that you're talking about when we're making investment decisions.
0: Yeah, and I, I want to be real clear here. I consider us at Diamond Hill value investors, and value investors in the sense that we strongly believe in that philosophy of buying shares in businesses for less than we believe they are worth based on the future expected cash flow stream of the business and then waiting patiently for that value to be realized. We've always preferred to call ourselves intrinsic value investors, which tries to be a little more specific about where we believe value comes from, and namely that it's derived from the essential competencies of a business and the future cash flows that those competencies allow it to produce. We will always purchase with a margin of safety which means we only buy shares when they are at a discount to our internal appraisal of what the intrinsic value of that business is. And sometimes that means our search drives us towards undervalued businesses uh, that are trading at low multiples of earnings or book value. But at other times, it might lead us to high quality growing businesses where the future prospects are underappreciated. Growth, and when I say growth, I I mean a very specific type of growth. I mean profitable, value-creating growth is a crucial part of estimating intrinsic value. And we spend significant amounts of time as an investment organization thinking about the future prospects of each company we invest in. This focused on the future long-term economics of, of the businesses we invest in positions us very well to be able to adapt to some of these changes in the economic environment we talked about earlier, because it gives us a very broad universe to work within. We look at truly exceptional businesses that are capitalizing on these changes in the economy, but we also look at cheap businesses on, that have hard assets and significant cash flows that we think are just undervalued, but have staying power as an organization in predictable cash flows over time. So I think that definition of how we think about intrinsic value and that more specific uh, definition of how we define ourselves really positions us well to be able to capitalize on all the shifts that we see uh, in the underlying economy today.
1: So maybe to just get a little bit more specific, could you give an example
0: uh, of a business like this where our intrinsic
1: value philosophies allowed us to find value um, in a stock that many people consider, quote unquote, a growth stock?
0: I'd be happy to give an example. And why don't I talk about Alphabet or you know, the company formerly known as Google? I think this is a great example because Google is a well-known company. It has a long track record of superior revenue and earnings growth and it has never been optically cheap relative to past measures of earnings or book value. And just as a reference point, Google today trades at five times book value and 30 times trailing earnings. So not exactly the typical fare for uh, someone who calls themselves a value investor. We purchased Google in February of 2015. And at the time, there was some controversy surrounding the ongoing shift to mobile search and the lower monetization rates through that channel. We believed that this was a temporary impact and that the long-term structural drivers of Google's ad-supported search business were very much in place. Namely, a continued transition to online ad spending and an expansion of the advertising market overall as companies looked to grow online spending and attract customers via the search engine. Google's valuation was slightly lower than its historical levels in early 2015 at roughly 20 times earnings and a high teens multiple when excluding net cash on the balance sheet, but was trading at a modest premium to the market overall. However, when we looked at the quality of Google's business and the predictability of its long term growth, we were very confident we were getting more value today in the form of a growing cash flow stream than what we had to pay to acquire that position. When we purchased Facebook in early 2018, it was a very similar situation where near term controversies had created a slightly lower valuation but we believe the long-term quality and growth drivers supported a higher appraisal of value. In each of these cases, both Google and Facebook benefited and continue to benefit from very strong network economics, where the number of users on their platforms makes them more and more valuable to to existing users and, and also to advertisers. And it makes it extremely challenging to compete with them. The strengths of these networks gave us confidence in forecasting out strong growth into the future over a number of years. And this is definitely not always the case. And I would emphasize that evaluating evaluating the strength of competitive advantage when forecasting out future growth becomes a crucial consideration uh, if you were going to call yourself a value investor and invest in companies that are redeploying large amounts of capital to grow their business over time.
1: You mentioned some of these dominant businesses of today that are very different than the dominant businesses of the past and and some of the reasons why their stocks have done so well recently. But what are the implications for businesses that do have hard assets that do have a book value that are statistically cheap?
0: Well, in some cases, I think those hard assets have become far less valuable and the addressable markets for some companies have declined as their competitive positions have eroded. I mean, just think about the retail industry and how the ability of Amazon to reach customers everywhere in the world and offer rapid delivery has undermined a business model built around widespread physical presence. However, what we're really talking about in that case and many others is a change in competition and the dynamics around how companies compete with one another. There are other instances in other industries such as financials or some areas within industrials where companies' valuations continue to be low relative to book value earnings, but those competitive positions have remained reasonably strong. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with a business trading at a low multiple of book value or earnings, as long as the incremental returns on capital aren't too low and capital isn't being redeployed in ways that destroy value. The difference between these types of companies, these more lowly valued companies in a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon for that matter, is that they don't have the ability to grow at the same pace or with these same high returns on capital that uh, that those internet companies have. So their valuation should be lower, but that doesn't mean that a low growth, low valuation company with a stable competitive position couldn't be a vastly superior investment at the right price. I think the recent environment has likely created more of those types of opportunities for investors who are able to distinguish between the various competitive circumstances that businesses face today. You know, price is always a critical factor, you know, maybe the most important factor in determining future returns. A low valuation can offer up fabulous returns for investors in average businesses. And conversely, too high a price can undermine even the best businesses I mean, we only need to go back to the tech bubble in the mega cap bubble of the late 90s. And it, it took investors in Coca-Cola 20 years to regain the levels they saw in 1998 because the stock was trading at 50 times earnings at the time. And so when we look at these valuation metrics and think about the changing dynamics and also the widespreads we see today We always have to be cognizant that what really matters is the competitive position and the price you're paying for that future cash flow stream. And it requires a lot of work and it's a confusing environment today, but I do suspect that more of those uh, true value opportunities driven by price uh, are available in the market today.
1: So along those lines, since the middle of May, we've seen smaller cap, more cyclical, more value oriented names outperform. Uh, I thought we'd end with just your thoughts on what it would take for value to outperform on a more sustained basis going forward. So not just two or three weeks, but maybe more like two or three years.
0: Well, I think part of it relates to that last uh, issue I was discussing, which is price. And in some ways we're fortunate if, if, if we are uh, investors in small cap stocks and value stocks in that the most painful part of positioning for future long-term returns has been taking place over the last few years. And that is uh, the fact that we've gotten cheaper on valuations and it's come uh, due to a significant period of relative underperformance which again is a painful experience to go through, but price matters. And I think we are getting to the point where that valuation itself can be a catalyst when we look forward over periods of two plus years into the future uh, and position us reasonably well for some of those companies to outperform. In addition, I do think a focus on competitive stability is crucially, crucially important because you need businesses where you can be confident in the cash flows you expect over a number of years, whether they're growing or not. And the reality is the small cap universe in general does not have the same quality growth franchises like Google, Facebook, just to use once again, uh, those companies as examples. You see many of those companies in large cap and they aren't available uh, in the small cap universe. So you need to be really careful and do some good analysis around the competitive dynamics. But for those investors who are able and willing to put in that time, again, I think we've lived through enough pain over the last few years that there's probably some really good opportunities available. Finally, I think there is a technical element to valuation that has strongly, strongly benefited those secular growth companies over the past, not just five years, but probably the past decade. And I think there's some reason to believe we are getting close to the point where, uh, it will no longer be a tailwind for those companies. And what I'm talking about here is just the very low discount rates we've had for stocks, uh, which has been driven, of course, by the steady decline in risk-free rates over the past several years uh, to a point today where we're below 1% on the 10-year treasury, which is the kind of ballast for the whole whole, uh, term structure of discount rates we see across assets. And what happens when you get really low discount rates is it favors the companies that are generating larger amounts of cash flow in the distant future. Those are companies with very large addressable markets, competitive advantages that allow them to grow, and high returns on incremental capital. And again, that essentially describes those secular growth companies that have done so well over the last five to 10 years, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, amongst many others. This relative revaluation has been going on for years now. And so I think today, the question we have to ask is from this point, from near zero rates, how much additional benefit can those secular growth companies uh, get in the future from this trend? And I believe a rising rate environment, if we were to see it over the next several years, would undoubtedly be a benefit to some of the more value-oriented companies that generate more of their cash flows in the early years uh, of that discounting process. And so when I look today, I see that those risks being much more balanced than perhaps they were 10 years ago. And of course, there is a risk that we could have a future the next decade where rates stay very, very low and that continues to favor a a widespread in the evaluations between growth companies and value companies. But I think those, those risks have become much more balanced And if we did get uh, any increase in interest rates, it would likely strongly favor uh, the value universe instead of uh, some of those growth stocks that have benefited so strongly over the past decade.
1: Austin, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining me today.
0: Thanks, Brian. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.